Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. It is my great personal treat to introduce to you one of my seriously favourite communicators in today's Christian world. John Ortberg is a PhD in clinical psychology, former minister at the Willow Creek Church in the US, and for the last 10 years or so, he's headed up the Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in San Francisco. He's one of my favourite podcast preachers. John is a prolific author with books like If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. There is Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. Ain't that true? And his latest, Who Is This Man? The Unpredictable Impact of the Inescapable Jesus. The former US Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice has written a foreword to John's book. She says, It gives those who believe and those who are perhaps not so certain a compelling reason to seek answers about this man, Jesus. John Ortberg, I'm so glad to say welcome to Open House. Yeah, I'm delighted to be on Open House. I only wish I was there in person. So do I. You should come soon. Thank you so much, John. I'm keen to explore this uh, really important and surprising things that you're saying about Jesus in your book in a moment. But I'm also keen for people to hear about your life and ministry and how you do life and ministry when and how did you first embrace Christian faith, John? Where did that start? Uh, I grew up in a home where uh, my mom and my dad both loved God and uh, loved Jesus, and I grew up in the church. So when I was quite young, uh, I had this real strong sense in my spirit that um, God was calling me to commit my life to Him, and so I did that, and it's been a journey with many ups and downs, but uh, a continual journey ever since. The best thing about it, the most challenging thing about it, what would you say? Wow. The best thing about it, I would say, is just the hope. I cannot imagine doing life with a sense of despair that existence is meaningless. And outside of Jesus, I don't know what that meaning would be. You know, Jesus himself, his life, his teachings, his story to be in a universe where there's a person like that, that's the best part about it. The most challenging, I, I, I'm somebody who has a lot of doubts and a lot of questions. My mind just works that way. Mm. Things that I feel like I don't understand. Suffering of people where I don't get why they have to suffer the way that they do. I have a list of questions that I want to talk to God about, and I'd say that's the hardest part. Embracing Christian faith is one thing. It's an entirely different thing to move from clinical psychology or specialty. How and why did that happen, John? two reasons. One is I was a horrible therapist. Uh, <laughs> when I was going through the program, you know, most people ended up going into clinical work, and I found when people would come to see me for therapy, they would get worse. <laughs> and um, I felt really trained in the process. Oh, dear. I thought, man, I got I to do this the rest of my life. I'll just slip my wrist now. <laughs> and at that same time, I started to work at a church, and I began to preach, and I found I love the church, and I love to preach. I love to get to be a part of a team and a part of that kind of a community. So it was really a lack of effectiveness and joy in one field and a deep sense of joy and calling in another one. You regard yourself and you call yourself a middle guy for those to whom you minister and preach. Yeah. What do you mean by that? I love to be able to read and study people who are way smarter than me. Like there's a guy, Dallas Willard, who's a philosopher, writes wonderful material on spiritual formation, or New Testament scholar by the name of N.T. Wright, to, to be able to read people like that and think about the faith, but then try to figure out what are ways to communicate really, really good thoughts about the Christian faith in ways that 
the average attender at church can get it, it can deepen people's faith, and it can actually change lives. So that, that intersection of being able to read really good, thoughtful, substantive stuff but try to translate that into language for everyday Christians. I love that intersection. Which is why, as I said, you're one of my favorite podcast preachers without embarrassing you. How important is it for you to truly love the people to whom you preach, as well as being their teacher and leader? Teaching and leading on their own can often turn out to be a cold or clinical thing. It's very interesting. I asked Dallas Willard one time, who's kind of a, a mentor for me, why should people go to church? Like, what's the most important reason to go to church? And his answer surprised me. I thought it would be something real theological or something about worship or even about learning. And what he actually said was, the most important reason to go to church is to find people to love, just to be with people and love them. Because we can do many other things on our own, but the church really is people. I've come to the conclusion that that's true for me as well. And the danger for me, because I do, I love to teach, I love to think, so I can like ideas. And there's also a part of me, for better and for worse, where the notion of performing, of coming alive in front of a group of people that I communicate to can get activated. And so the, the dark side for me is that preaching can simply be about ideas and about performance. My primary calling is to love people, and I know when I get to the end of my life, Lee, what will make a difference, what I will remember, and what will count is the people that I have actually loved. And um, so for me, training to love people is actually kind of on the top of my list these days. You've clearly thought deeply about the whole business of communication. As you think about the rush of communication change in the era in which we're living, it's shaping and challenging so much of communicating Christian truth in this day and age and how it's shaping those who listen to you, whether it's in church or online. What do you say about the degree of change and the degree of challenge there? Not only has it changed enormously, but the rate of change on it is exponential. The availability and accessibility of information and communication to people is huge. Everybody is able to listen to anybody, a preacher or otherwise, that they want to. Um, attention spans keep getting shorter and shorter. I think I read where 85% of all people who watch the Super Bowl were on Twitter, they were on their cell phones or iPads or some other form of social media at the same time. Yes, Communication has gotten more complex, it's gotten more nuanced, it's gotten more layered, it's gotten much more participative and much less passive. People don't want to just be empty containers that you're dumping stuff into. They want to have a part in the conversation. So preaching has changed, publishing has changed, writing has changed. It's a much more participative, much more communal event it can be difficult because I think that that makes it harder for people to engage patiently with real substantive thought. On the other hand, it can be great because the reality is people really absorb only the material that they not only listen to, but they interact with, they talk with, and actually teach and use themselves. One of the effective dynamics of communication that I think remains the same is the power of the story. I know that you know that well in the stories you tell and how you tell them. I think there's a real good reason why the Bible did not come to us as a owner's handbook or a yes. manual of rules. It yes. primarily is a story. And it's because story is the world in which persons live. You know, what makes something a story is that it's an account of what happens to a person or persons, and it has meaning, and it has an arc to it, and all of us hope that our lives will have meaning. And that's part of why story touches us in such a deep way. I think story 
stories don't really illustrate the truth. When they're told rightly, stories contain more truth than just straight didactic material alone. On Open House, we're with John Ortberg from the Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in San Francisco and author of this new book, Who Is This Man? So to your book, John, about the man who you say is the most influential man in the world, Jesus, and yet a man who you also say no one really knows to see and touch. may seem a surprising thing to say. The book grew out of a talk that I did about Jesus' impact on the world, just on the history of the world, on how so many different fields, from education to political thought to uh, the expression of compassion to how we view children to art, are fundamentally different for most of us than they would be if Jesus had not been born. And even folks inside the church, even folks familiar with the Bible, often have simply no idea of the size of the wake that he left in his life and that whether or not somebody believes that Jesus was divine, we live in a profoundly Jesus-shaped world. It's a really helpful and I think thought-provoking excursion through history over the last couple of thousand years, how Jesus' impact just grew and grew. For a start, that impact was greater 100 years after his death than actually during his life and has gone on and on from there. You know, with most people that have had a big world influence, you knew before they died, certainly the night that they died, that they were going to be famous and the name would reverberate through history. And that was true of Caesar Augustus or Alexander the Great or Steve Jobs, for that matter. You know, when they die, everybody knows. When Jesus died on that night, if you think about it, only a tiny, obscure handful of followers in a little city tucked away in the Middle East even knew that he had lived. And nobody could have predicted that he would have much of an impact on the world. So with Jesus, it's not simply that he's had a greater impact than anybody else that's so striking. It's the gap between how unlikely that impact could have been predicted on the day that he died versus you know, the fact that it's larger than anybody else's that you can imagine. So here's the question. How do you account for such an impact, such influence over thousands of years? Part of what I do in the book, part of what I wanted to do is to talk about Jesus in a way that could be accessible for somebody who doesn't know if they believe in God and they're not ready to sign off on Jesus is divine, and to say, look, let's just take a look at how our world is different because he lived. What's, what's the stuff that he taught and the life that he lived and the movement that he started, and how did that end up changing things? And I think for anybody, if you do that, what you find is pretty soon you just you become an admirer of his. If you start as a student, then you just admire him deeply. And if you keep admiring him enough, eventually you want to start trying to do the way that he did, because it strikes you, I think he's worth following. And that you end up becoming a believer. And, and I think for any serious student, uh, it's very difficult to look deeply at his life and his impact and not end up believing there is something beyond the merely human in this man, Jesus. Because it didn't happen with political power, it didn't happen with military power, didn't happen by force or loudly. How did it spread then? Yeah, it was the power of an understanding of life and the story of a life that has captured human minds and imagination like no other philosophy, no other person, no other teaching. And in so many different areas, Lee, like a lot of folks don't know this, in the ancient world, humility was not a widely admired virtue. People thought if somebody was great, they ought to be really puffed up about it. And um, 
in fact, it's a, a historian in Australia who has written a book called Humilitas uh, about that, who says that the primary reason why humility became an admired virtue in the world is because of the life of Jesus on the cross. When it comes to the idea of forgiveness or love of enemies, there's a uh, similar arc in the ancient world. The idea was you should help your friends, but get revenge on your enemies. And it was really through Jesus that this notion of forgiveness and love of enemy spread to be admired throughout the wider world. And over and over and over, he has this impact. Could I ask you about one particular aspect of Jesus' ministry and his work, what he meant and means to women, and you've highlighted that. And begin with a bit of an historical perspective in the place of women in the Greco-Roman world. A lot of folks don't understand how difficult and cruel the ancient world could be for women. And, for example, a sociologist named Rodney Stark writes about this. In the ancient world, based on archaeology, it's thought that generally there were about 1.4 million men for every 1 million women. And when you ask what happened to that other 400,000 women, uh, it is that because they were born the wrong gender, they were left to die of exposure right after birth. That's the world into which women were born. They were very commonly sold into slavery, and that almost always involved um, sexual exploitation in the ancient world. What we talk about as a double standard, we're a little embarrassed by, in ancient Rome, uh, it was not a source of embarrassment. There was, it was literally codified in law. People were kind of proud about that, that the sexual behavior of men and the restrictions around women were something that everybody knew and understood. Women were, for the most part, not educated. And it was largely Jesus... The way that he dealt with women, the way that he treated them, he included them, he taught them. That little story of Mary and Martha, a lot of people don't know. A lot of people may know about. They may not know that when it says that Mary sat at Jesus' feet, the technical expression meaning she became his disciple. And over time, the community of Jesus would teach women as well as men in the ancient world. You read through Paul's letters, an extraordinary number of women are cited in leadership positions within the church. Um, women flocked to the church in its early centuries in disproportionate numbers. Widows who were fined for surviving their husband in ancient Rome were cared for in the early church. And it took a long time, and the church often got it wrong, uh, but Jesus and his movement ended up elevating and changing the way that women were viewed and treating in the world in staggering ways. And for women and for all, at the very heart of his new commandment is love. How do you reflect on the place of love in Jesus' life, how that went on to influence the world and continues, hopefully in today's church? You know, Lee, a great observation. We'll often hear folks, and sometimes folks who would not consider themselves Christians or people outside the church, say something like, you know, I believe in God, but my God is a God of love. Well, that actually is an idea that God is a God of love, and it came from somewhere. It was not a common idea in the ancient world. Nobody ever said, I love Zeus. Nobody ever said, I love Baal. The notion that God is a lovable being who wants to be loved is actually an idea that came out of little Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love him with all your heart and soul and strength. And, and that the love of God and that God is love came from Israel through Jesus to the rest of the world. 
And he didn't just teach it, he lived it. And I fall short of it so often. But every time somebody says, I believe in a God of love, knowingly or not, we are remembering one more of the gifts that Jesus has given us. And yet, you also say, Jesus is a dangerous man, which may seem a surprising thing to say from a modern Christian leader. A lot of times, the perception that people have of Jesus is that he's this very sensitive person, very gentle, like to hang out with children, you always see sheep around him, that sort of thing. Uh, And yet, at the same time, we're told that he went into the temple once, overturned tables. Not only that, this one I've never done, even when I got mad, he got a whip and drove people out of the temple. Um, You know, when we think about what would Jesus do, not very often do people think, I'm going to go get a whip and and, um, start turning tables over. Jesus' commitment to God and to caring for every person and to justice meant that when injustice was done, when there was a person who was diseased and people who claimed to be religious didn't want to heal him, didn't want to care for him because it was the Sabbath, Jesus would deliberately make things extremely uncomfortable for those religious leaders. Uh, He was a very dangerous guy for people with power who would exclude or demean or cheapen the humanity of others, and that got him into enormous trouble, and eventually it got him killed. And then, of course, through his movement, it also meant enormous trouble for people who have power and would abuse it eventually. John, there's one particular word you highlight, and that's the word hypocrite, a word that occurs 17 times in the New Testament, and a great barrier of faith. Why do you focus in on that particular word? Another remarkable dimension of Jesus. We'll often hear folks complain about hypocrisy in the church and Christians who are hypocrites. Very often that's extremely well-deserved. There is an enormous amount of hypocrisy there. Part of what I try to do in the book is to distinguish between the impact of Christianity on the one hand and the impact of Jesus on the other, because I think those of us who are Christians get it wrong probably about as often as we get it right. What's interesting is, for people who are upset about religious hypocrisy, it actually is Jesus um, who took the word hypocrite, the old Greek word hypocritus was used for actors. They would wear a mask to show what role they were playing. And Jesus is the primary person who gave the word hypocrite its moral content and shaped it to talk about how faith really aims at producing a transformed heart and that people who try to make their behavior look good while their hearts are bad are way off base, and those are the folks that he called hypocrites. That was kind of a signature word of his. I think he's the only one to use it in the New Testament, and as you mentioned, he used it 17 times. So ironically, even when people complain about religious hypocrisy, again, we're actually kind of paying tribute to Jesus, who is the guy that really created the category of condemnation of religious hypocrites. Yes. So my final question, if he's the man who's hard to know without seeing touching, how do we find out, and when we do, what will we find out about? There's a wonderful little uh, phrase at the beginning of the Gospel of John where one man is talking to another man about Jesus, and the invitation that he offers is, come and see. And the idea is you might have questions, you might have doubts, you might be skeptical. Just come and listen to what he says and look at the way he lives and try to do what it is that he teaches and see what happens. And I would say that's the greatest invitation that's ever been offered to the human race. It has changed lives in every culture and every century. 
and it still does. And for anybody listening to us, that invitation, come and see, stands. And I would suggest just actually start with the New Testament. Go back to the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of John, and look at the way that Jesus treats people. Look at how his life is lived, and then read what he teaches. Read about the golden rule. Read about how to handle anger or how to handle money or how to handle lust or how to be anxious for nothing. And then actually take him as your teacher. Try to live what he says. And I think what will happen is people will go from being students of his to admirers of his to followers and believers of his. John Ortberg, I'm so pleased and I must say I'm so privileged that you've joined us on Open House with everything that you've had to say. I'm so glad. Thank you so much indeed for your time. Thanks, Lee. It was a great honour and I hope to get out to Australia soon. (laughs) We hope to see you soon. Thanks very much, John. John is the author of this new book, Who Is This Man? And we'll put the details up on our Open House community Facebook page. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.